0: Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. The name Anthony Scaramucci currently has a 55% name recognition in the U.S., according to Politico. Anthony's been an entrepreneur in the hedge fund industry for 23 years, growing to prominence within the industry through his fund-to-fund Skybridge Capital, creation of the popular SALT Conference, regular television appearances, and rejuvenation of the iconic television show Wall Street Week. He grew to prominence worldwide when his longtime political interests led to a brief tenure as White House Communications Director in 2017. Our conversation starts off with a bang and turns to the ups and downs in Anthony's career, including getting fired and rehired at Goldman Sachs, starting and selling his first hedge fund, creating SkyBridge and watching it almost fail, and then thrive after the financial crisis. We discuss Anthony's thoughts on hedge funds, lessons from his stint in Washington, and books he's written about his experiences. Along the way, he shares life lessons about managing people, building relationships, resiliency, laughing at yourself, greed, ego, and fame. Anyone who's only known Anthony from his recent public profile might be surprised to hear the depth of his insight, self-effacing honesty, and caring of others alongside his irrepressible salesmanship. Those who have known him longer will recognize the same Mooch as always in all his splendor. If you hear the conversation and would like to hear an unedited version with a few outtake gems, sign up for the premium content service at capitalallocatorspodcast.com/premium. You'll also get access to the library of transcripts and discussion groups for each episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. It's
1: a pleasure to be here. I, I have you as like one of the smartest people I know. it's so
0: ah, very kind. Flattering
1: that I'm sitting in the same room with you. Oh, please.
0: So <laughs> I think a lot of the people listening probably don't know your full story. So why don't you just start at the beginning? Well, let's talk
1: about why they wouldn't know my full story, right? The reason why they wouldn't know my full story is that I was in the White House for 11 days, not 10. I explode out of the White House. I get fired by Kelly. I obviously made a stupid comment to a reporter who recorded it and ran over to CNN. It's a bunch of nonsense, but I own the mistake. And then the excoriation and dunking process takes place. And then Washington's hoping that I go away, which, of course, that's not my personality. (laughs) And so now I'm known as the former communications director for Trump, uh, shortest serving communications director, but I'm actually not because Jason Miller is the shortest serving communications director he served for one day. Nobody reports that, but it's totally fine. Jason and I love each other, so the combined 12 days of Christmas, me and Jason Miller. <laughs> but the point being is that the dunking and the excoriation starts, then you have all of this robotic technology and social media, and they're trying to define people like me because adversaries of the president, somebody like me that's a high profile that's still loyal to the president. There's three or four comments that are made by the robots your 15 minute of fame is up don't give him any more airtime. he's not worth the airtime. he only spent 11 days in the white house so why should we pay attention to him those are the robotic technology hits that happened to me so now the other 30 years of my career have been diminished by that very tip of the iceberg you yeah. see that so yeah. that's right basically what happened so i'm happy to talk about my career if yeah. you want you know I, I grew up on long island i uh Grew up in a blue collar, middle class family, went to Tufts University and then Harvard Law School. Didn't want to be a lawyer, but I ended up accepting a job at Goldman Sachs in the investment banking area. I got fired from that job, so that was the first time I got fired. How did that come about? How did I get fired well, or how did yeah, I get the how job? How did you
0: get yourself in a situation where you got fired?
1: I got fired because I actually sucked at the job. What was your first job at Goldman? So I was an investment banking associate in the real estate department. And so that was basically being a glorified analyst. So you had to know spreadsheets. You had to know macros on Lotus 1, 2, 3. And then there was a new spreadsheet being developed called Excel, which is now the universal standard, but it wasn't back then. And I knew nothing about that stuff. And you had to know a lot about corporate finance, which I learned along the way, but didn't learn any of that in school. And so I was under experience in the job, but they were in a boom period of time there. And they were looking to hire a lot of people. I had a great starting series of interviews, and so they offered me the job in December of 1988. My first day on the job was August 14th, 1989. I got fired from the job on February 1st, 1991, so I was only there for 18 months. And why did I suck at the job? I was inexperienced, and I was probably performing in the bottom quartile of my peer group. The firm was going through a recession, the Gulf War had started, and they were looking to fire people, and usually they fire the last in or first out, also known as LIFO, and so they sat me down. Mike Facitelli, who became the chairman of Vernado Realty, CEO, he was running the real estate department at that time. He sat me down. And he said, listen, you suck at the job. You're a very hard worker. You're a good guy, but well, you absolutely suck at the job, so we're firing you, and I'm going to give you $11,000 severance check, and I wish you luck. I could have kept you. You're a nice guy. People like you around here but that would have been a disservice to you, the firm, and your career because you're really not that good at this. You should find something that you're good at. So I was heartbroken. I was embarrassed, humiliated. 18 months into my career, a Harvard Law School graduate, shamed and humiliated with uh, firing. And so I went out and looked for a job and I brought a roll of quarters with me back into New York City and I started putting them into pay phones. There were no cell phones back then. And then finally got in touch with somebody. They said, hey, there's a job opening at Goldman Sachs. And I laughed. I said, okay, where? In the asset management area, you know, sales area, et cetera. So learning lesson number one, don't burn any bridges. So I pick up the phone. I called my old boss who had just fired me and I said, hey, can you refer me to that job? He said, no, I absolutely will. I actually think that would be a good job for you. He went upstairs. He talked to the partner in charge up there. It took about six or eight weeks for me to get that job. They were obviously, Goldman was very rigorous on the interviews. They were interviewing a lot of people. And on March 28th, 1991, I got rehired at Goldman Sachs. And now the best part of this story is the personnel director for the division called me and said, hey, you know, you got really good news for you. You're never going to have to tell anybody you got fired. We're just going to mark you down as an interdepartmental transfer. I said, OK, that's cool. And then she says, hey, can I get the $11,000 back, please? <laughs> and I was like, NFW, there's no way you're getting that back. I needed the money. You know, I was in school debt up to my ears. And so I said, hey, you can tell everybody on planet Earth they got fired. I don't care. And to her credit, she just retired about two years ago from Goldman. She marked me down as interdepartmentally transferred. So I could have saved that blemish from my life, but then what fun is that, right? I mean, it was a big, deep scar. I went on to do reasonably well at Goldman thereafter, and then I left to start Oscar Capital Management in 1996 uh, with Andy Bozart, which did very well. And then we ended up selling that firm to Newberger Berman in 2001. It was a phenomenal experience. He is a great guy, but he was a great partner great mentor, incredibly generous, very wise in terms of how to treat people. And he had a set of nuts on him. I don't know if you're allowed to say that on your podcast. You know, I get in trouble for my potty mouth, but this guy had a tremendous amount of courage and somebody
0: I really look up to. And did that play its way through in the way he invested?
1: It did. I mean, I think one of the issues is on his uh, hedge fund, he was probably running it a little bit too volatile. He had phenomenal performance, but his downdrafts looked a little bit like a managed futures account. So, I made it hard for us to market to big money institutions, but we made a ton of money off of high net worth individuals, and frankly, they made a ton of money as well. We had a registered investment advisor who was running long only money for individuals, and then we had a concentrated account. So let's say you were a high net worth individual. Let's say you had $50 million with us, maybe you had $48 million with us on a stock and bond portfolio. That we were managing for you separately managed account, maybe you put two million in our like a high octane, turboized hedge fund, and so that's really what the nature of it was. So our our assets under management were about a billion. We had about one hundred and fifty to two hundred million in that fund,
0: and then you go over to Newberger, and then Newberger sells, right?
1: Yeah. So we joined Newberger December first, two thousand one, October thirty first, two thousand three. They sell. To uh, Lehman Brothers, and literally we move over there on November first, two thousand three. Okay, interesting story. There is they basically gave you Lehman Brothers stock for Newberger shares, and that stock was a little bit on a tear, and it it dropped about twenty percent. And I remember a lot of my colleagues selling their Lehman Brothers shares down twenty percent from what the Newberger purchase price was. You know, they got freaked out and scared out of the stock. And so I was obviously very naive, very stupid, and very stubborn. I held my stock, okay? And so when that stock rallied back big, I was a beneficiary of that. Now I'm leaving Newberger to start Skybridge, which is where I am today. You know, 13 years the company is. It's March of 2005, and I'm going to start Skybridge Capital. Dick Fold gives me $10 million of balance sheet capital put in my fund. I left on very good terms. Everything's great. I asked the personnel and options area if I can keep all of my stock in Lehman Brothers because I'm absolutely convinced the stock is going to go to $300 a share. So there I am in March of 2005 proclaiming that Lehman's going to 300 The stock was at 45 So they said, well, you can't do that because you're leaving the firm. You have to liquidate your position. <laughs> and I said, well, no, I'll petition and I'll appeal that. I wouldn't appeal that. I lost the appeal. I sold all my stock at $41. Stock was given to me at 19. So that was fine. Then the stock went from 41 to 89, and then I wanted to stab my eyeball out with a butter knife somewhere. I thought I was, quote unquote, leaving all of this money on the table. I was lamenting about it. And then March of 2007, hit with the Bear Stearns fiasco, Lehman shook, and then six months later, it was out of business, and the stock literally went to 0 And I like mentioning this to people, particularly younger people. It's not the stuff that you do not know that's going to hurt you in the world of investing. That's not what's going to hurt you. It's the stuff that you think you know with absolute clarity and absolute axiomatic fact. Okay, It's your unstinting conviction and belief that's going to hurt you. And so you should never have that. You should always anticipate what the worst is and build yourself up from that position. Every time in my career where I haven't done that, I've gotten blown out except at that time through the grace of God I was forced out of the stock in 2005. Right. I would have held that stock and lost all that money, frankly.
0: So you start Skybridge in 2005 and it was originally a seating business.
1: It was originally a seating business. I was actually competing against your business back then. You had a seating business. Well, I wasn't competing as you guys were much bigger, but we were originating same idea that you guys were doing. And so we raised a $330 million fund. We seeded eight managers. One manager is still doing quite well, Westport Capital Partners, and we still own a piece of that firm on their great guys, and they went on to win. But unfortunately, our seeds got caught by the buzzsaw of the 2008 financial crisis. So of the eight managers that we seeded, seven of them we lost our seeding investment in. There's one guy, he, he runs a firm called Abdiel, Connor Morant and we seated him and then unfortunately I had to pull my money from him because I was getting heavy redemptions. I thought he was a terrific manager and a terrific guy. He went on to have an unbelievable tear. I mean, he's got a phenomenal business and he's done great and I wish him and his family and his business well. And frankly, I wish I was his partner, uh, but we couldn't because we, we got redeemed on. And so that's the so vagaries of the cyclicality of life.
0: You have the seating business, you go through the crisis and everything's imploding So what happens from there?
1: So now, you know, I'm gallows humor sort of a guy. So I'm calling Skybridge, no bridge, the bridge (laughs) to nowhere, blown up bridge. I mean, we were getting our you know what kicked. And so this is when you really realize either you're an entrepreneur or you're not. You have to make a decision. In this room that we're talking from, there used to be a little round table. I made this into a conference room now as we got bigger, but a little round table. I had a desk over there. I can't tell you the number of people sat at that little round table and told me to shut down the firm and that you know that it was gonna go out of business and that I had no chance of survival. And so I did a couple of things that I don't think other people would have done is I mortgaged my house. I put the money into the business. I said, this will buy me another 12 to 15 months to figure this out. And then I launched something which is now known as the SALT Conference. But back then, it was just a small hedge fund conference, we called it SALT, which stood for SkyBridge Alternatives. And the reason we launched it is I thought that we were going to lose our seeding business and I was going to end up as a third-party marketer. And so I thought if I had a conference, it would help me gravitate investors and gravitate potential fund managers. I'd go out there and raise them money. And so I started the conference in March of 2009. The Dow was at 6,500. I mean, I don't even know where. I think the uh, S&P was 670, something like that. So it was March of 2009. Couple things happened that month. Number one, Ben Bernanke said he would helicopter money to, on the streets if he needed to because he knew the world was in a liquidity crisis. Number two, Barack Obama said, "Don't go to Las Vegas if you're a fat cat. Land your plane, and now's not the time to go to Las Vegas." But the problem with that was that you had bellhops, concierge people, maids, waiters—all of these blue collarish middle class jobs in Las Vegas were suffering from the elimination or the evacuation of the conference business. So I cold called the mayor. I cold called the former governor. And then I started the process of going to different hotels to see what would give me a good deal. And then I brought the conference out to Las Vegas. And, you know, that conference is now 10 years old. We didn't do it last year because our deal was in flux, but we're doing it next year. It'll be May 7th to the 10th. It'll be in Las Vegas. So that was a good cornerstone business. And then Citibank was shedding their assets, and so I went over there to buy their seating business and Mike Corbett, who's now the CEO of City, who was running their private equity area, said to me, well, I can't really sell you the seating business, it's too small, but if you want to buy the fund of funds business, which includes the seating business, I'm willing to sell that to you. And so that's when I really had to make a decision, again, am I an entrepreneur or not? And so I liquidated, in addition to the mortgage I had on my house, I liquidated all of the assets that I had. And I took all of that money and I put it into what ultimately became Skybridge's business today. We negotiated the deal in April. We closed the transaction on June
0: 30th. How big was that business then?
1: So that business was $1.4 billion. We got it up to 14 and it's now about 10 and a half billion. And so Some of the slippage was related to, we've had a great 10, 3, 7, 10-year track record, probably a 15-month period of time where we we were underperforming. That was like in the 15, first quarter of 16. Since then, we've had unbelievable performance, but that 15-month record, combined with the uncertainty about the ownership because we put the business up for sale to go serve the country, Mm -hmm. that led to an evacuation of some capital, which is now coming back in, because again, it's arguably one of the better Uh, Track records out there. So, what our business is now four offices, $10.2 billion under management on the way up. We've got about 60 people on staff. We've got an office in Korea, an office in Palm Beach, and an office in London. And I'm excited to be back. I used to host the show Wall Street Week. I thought that was a lot of fun. I hosted that show because I thought it fit into the SALT business and fit into our asset management business. And I'm now looking at other projects like that. And hopefully we'll be able to make an announcement related to that sometime in September of this year.
0: Let's turn a little bit to just talking about investing. Do you go about the hedge fund business with a particular philosophy in mind?
1: I've never been an investor per se. It's not to say that I haven't made a lot of money investing, but I've always viewed myself as more of a team captain who can spot talent and delegate a lot of responsibility to that talent. And I've really spent most of my time on branding, communication, creating the right culture. And then obviously the most important thing, and I tell everybody this, compliance is first at SkyBridge. Client service and investment performance are a close second. And so if you get the compliance right, you're protecting everybody. You're protecting the employees and their jobs and their families. You're protecting your customers. And ultimately, it leaves your investment management team unfettered to worry about nonsense. And so- uh, those are my jobs inside the firm. But when you really think about an investment philosophy that I've anchored my life to, it's basically a value investment philosophy. It's a analytical philosophy based on fundamentals. It's less macro in its orientation and it's less technical. Some people use charts and technical analysis. Other people use macro analysis. This has always been a bottoms up shop. Not saying that we don't have a top-down view, like we'll look at the world, we'll look at the economy, we'll look at the economic dashboard, we'll get some sense of where rates are gonna be and where GDP is gonna be and where interest rates are relative to those couple of things, and then we reverse engineer into, well, what securities, stocks, bonds, derivatives, options, trust securities, like these trust prefers at the banks, what securities will work in the different environments? And then once we realize what securities will work, we start to build a portfolio. So the three hallmarks of SkyBridge's success. Number one, on the backdrop of fundamental investing, we take concentrated positions. Our attitude is, is that if we're right on something, we want to be right and make a material difference to a client's account. And so our top eight to 10 investments, our hedge fund managers that we give money to, are probably 65% of the portfolio. Number two, we're thematic. And so what we'll do is we'll sit down and say, okay, Here are things that seem to work. Here are things that in this investment environment will offer an absolute return that's non-correlated to interest rates, non-correlated to the stock or bond market, but can generate a high single digit return in this environment. And so that's concentrated. So there'll be one, two, three themes, but really no more than three themes. And then the last thing is that we're dynamic. We like to trade out of things that we're wrong on. And so we have probably a 35 to 40% turnover on our portfolio as we're searching for the right recipe to generate that 8 to 9% return.
0: How do you marry the relationship side with turnover? You're a big relationship guy. You're investing in managers. A lot of people tend not to turn over their portfolios, and part of that may be they're wedded to the relationship.
1: I think one of the things that actually indirectly benefited us was our conference, right? So I have spent a lot of time with the top-tier managers In the United States, convincing them that whether we're in or out of their fund, it's incumbent upon them to have a very good relationship with us because we can help them meet other clients. We can set them up on marketing meetings at our conference. We can help avail them to clients outside of our current book of business. And so that's one thing. Uh, Another thing is even though we have this turnover, if you looked at our duration with managers, we're three to seven years depending on the manager. And so guys look at us as as follows. If Troy Gajewski and Ray Nolte are coming into their fund, they're likely gonna be there to three to seven years. They go in eyes wide open, we go in eyes wide open. We're not churning the way the reputation of typical fund advisory businesses get accused of, but what we are doing is we are telegraphing to managers what our goals are. You know, As an example, I'm sure he won't mind me saying his name because we're close personal friends, I've had a very close relationship with Dan Loeb over the last 10 years. We have more money with him today than we did a year ago. But a year ago, we had way less money with him than we did three years ago. And so we've sort of had a little bit of an M with Dan. And now it's starting to turn into a J again, you know, where it's going back up. And so his attitude is he loves having us as clients. We're straight shooters. We give him a sense for what our duration is. And I think that as long as you're communicating with these managers what's up, what you're thinking about. I think it's good for them. It's good for
0: us. So a couple of years ago, at the beginning of, eh, maybe the middle of what was a tough period for hedge funds, you were on a town hall with President Obama. Mm-hmm. 2010. This sort of famous line about you know, hedge funds feeling like there were pinatas, which I remember well. Now we're seven, eight years after that. And it feels like there've been more and more pin cushions, maybe until this year. So talk a little bit about the environment and what you see for hedge funds going forward.
1: I was really more generic than that. I was really saying, you know, why are you why are you whacking Wall Street, which would include hedge funds, investment banks, private equity, so hard with a pinata stick. If you're Italian-American, you probably shouldn't use the word whack on live TV with an American president, okay? It probably <laughs> wasn't the best choice of words. But he was adept politically, so he started hitting me, and he started talking about fees and carried interest and all this other stuff, and that's fine. He had the opportunity to do that. He was the president. and He was controlling the nuclear codes. I wasn't. But what was missed in the conversation, what I was really trying to do is suggest to the president that there's a harmony between Main Street and Wall Street, and that if we totally diverge, meaning we break off Main Street from Wall Street, it's going to be very bad for the country, because at the end of the day, when you step back, Wall Street is the arterial structure of the capitalist system. It's literally the design of where capital can flow. You want to go into fracking, you come to Wall Street, you raise money. You want to build a new search engine, your name is Google, you come to Wall Street and venture capital and raise money. And so what you don't want to do is overly constrict those arteries, which will damage the flow of capital in the society. But what basically happened is after the financial crisis, and some of it was quite justified, the fat, greedy cats on Wall Street were excoriated A lot of investment bankers were shamed by politicians and others, even though the financial crisis, and Alan Blinder probably wrote, in my opinion, the best book about the crisis. It was called When the Music Stopped, probably wrote the best book. It was a tripartite failure. Uh, Washington failed the way they were pushing these subprime loans on the banks. The banks failed because they got super greedy in terms of the laxity of their underwriting standards. And Main Street, the mom and pop failed because they were getting greedy as well in terms of buying larger and larger houses that they couldn't afford. And so, but that doesn't matter. The easiest target and the most unprotected class is Wall Street. And so Wall Street was getting hammered super hard. It's 10 years from the crisis. We're still getting hammered. And if you go back to the 1930s, after the 1929 stock market crash, it wasn't until 1952 So it literally took 23 years for Wall Street to find favor again. And I'll tell you the day that it happened. It was November of 1952 when Prescott Bush, who was an investment banker at Brown Brothers Harriman, a partner there, got elected to the United States Senate as a Republican senator from Connecticut. And so that group of Wall Streeters were fat cats and excoriated for 23 years. When they came back into vogue... Bush 41's dad and Bush 43's grandpa was elected and used to play golf with Dwight Eisenhower and the cycle of renaissance activity for Wall Street was starting and lo and behold, it went through the 80s, lasted into the 90s, and then got schmeistered in 2008. And so we are, And to my Wall Street uh, brethren, brothers and sisters that are listening to this podcast, I got bad news for you. You got about another 10 to 15 years to go before the cycle will swing back and you'll fall back into favor, but you're still going to be treated like pariahs as a result of what happened in 2008.
0: So within the hedge fund space, what does that look like going forward? We've just gone through a rough 10-year period, at least as some people look at in terms of relative returns.
1: Yeah. The 10-year period can be explained by the macro dynamic of monetary policy, global monetary policy, and quantitative easing, which is an extra boost To, you know, if you can't get the rates below zero, buy down the curve, you're effectively reducing long term rates. And so that's what these guys have done. And the ECB is still doing it, although they're now claiming that they'll end by December. But the problem in that sort of environment is that rising tide is going to lift every boat. So if you're a fundamentalist and you're a security analytical person, you could say, okay, I'm going to get my longs right the market goes up 10, your longs go up 13, you look like a genius. And now I'm going to short things. Well, you're shorting things, but the levitation of the monetary policy is causing everything to go up. Your shorts go up six. So you're up 13 on one side, your shorts are up six, you're up seven, market went up 10, you're underperforming the market, and then you get a nasty article written about you by Fortune Magazine or the Wall Street Journal. And so and that's been the case. And so all of this stuff has flood into the ETFs over the 10 years. Everyone does that backward analysis and says, yeah, hedge funds suck. We got to move into ETFs. But the problem is it just at the inflection point when interest rates are starting to normalize again, where pressure will be put on various indices and pressure will be put on that meta trade, the macro trade of just being long, everything is going away. The micro trade of security analytics, hedge fund investing, looking for strategies that reduce volatility or have some level of non-correlation will come back into vogue. And so for me, I think this is our brightest days for the hedge fund industry about we're about to embark upon, particularly if Jerome Powell, our Fed chair, keeps his promise of raising rates four times this year.
0: What have you learned from being fired?
1: You probably don't have enough time on the podcast, but what I have learned is be a big boy when you're fired, shake it off, don't get all vitriolic and crazy, you know, dust dust yourself off. Try not to burn bridges. When uh, Kelly fired me from the White House, which I thought – I didn't think it was justified, but that's fine. He had the right to do it, and I'm accountable for the mistake I made. Uh, but I had no problem with him. You know, it's no problem. I shook his hand walked out of the White House. You know, But that doesn't mean that I'm going to be in love with every single policy that comes out of the White House. I'm not aligned. I think we have to call balls and strikes as Americans. You know, I'm a Trump supporter, but I have been very honest about things like morale. I've been very honest in things like this separation of baby policy. I'm not going to be a apologist. I'm going to be somebody that loves the country, wants to see the president and his staff do very well. But I think if you're surrounding anybody, whether it's the president of the United States, the CEO of Skybridge, anybody that's surrounded by yes people, it's always a cautionary tale because what ends up happening is people start to believe their own confirmed biases And they're missing the bigger picture, and so you need strong-minded people around you that can check you. So for me, I'm a believer in don't burn a bridge, but also don't lose your integrity, don't lose your character, and you'll be just fine. And by the way, if you get fired the way I did with the total full-blown mainstream media dunking in the public square and all of its excoriation where they grind you into sausage and then they roll you in broken glass... Have a good attitude about it. Who cares? You know, be self-deprecating. You know, I was there for eleven days, not ten. You know, Steve Colbert is ripping me. He says that my time in the White House is known as a Scaramucci because it was eleven days. I looked over to him and says, "No, it's not. It's known as a mooch. It's it's too short of a period of time <laughs> to be called a Scaramucci. You got to call it a mooch." My point is, roll with it and uh, don't take yourself too seriously. And bad stuff's going to happen to you in your life. I'm sorry to tell that to people. You want your life to be perfect. Everybody wants it to be like the perfect situation comedy from the 70s or the 80s or whatever it was, but it's not that way. I tell my kids, probably shouldn't use bad words. Like my four-year-old is marching around in asset, and he's saying, don't use bad words. My daddy got fired from the White House for using bad words. So I'm training him, right? Don't use bad words because I could get you fired from the White House, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, Donald Trump fired him for bad words. Of course, nobody in the White House has ever said a bad word other than me, which is ironic. But the point that I'm making is that the bad words like the F-bomb and stuff like that are bad. But the worst word, the worst word in our language is the word ought, O-U-G-H-T. Like things ought to go a certain way. Your parents ought to get along and they ought not to get divorced. Your kid ought to get a 3,600 on the ACT. You ought to make millions of dollars or whatever, whatever it might be. So, so yeah, so the word ought and the word should delete them yeah. from the language and deal with the world the way it is. The other thing I would tell you is if you're having a pity party for yourself somewhere in your life, stop the music and the funeral dirge and stop having the pity party because number one, nobody cares. Number two, dust yourself off and get back in the game with the best attitude that you can possibly have. And so that, that's what I try to tell my kids.
0: So You've always been really resilient. There have been the Goldman Sachs, the original Skybridge, Oscar as it was having trouble. Does it really just roll off your shoulders with that attitude, or how do you how do you manage your way through when it's when you really feel the blow to your stomach?
1: Let me tell you, I'm walking on the Third Street or Fourth Street Promenade. If you're listening from Santa Monica, California, you know the name of your promenade there, not on the pier, but where the shopping area is. And my 25-year-old son is putting his arm around me. This is a week after I was fired. And he's like, Pop, are you, are you going to be okay? I mean, this is like a disaster. I mean, they're destroying you every day in the press. And I said, yeah, not only am I going to be okay, I am going to thrive from this. And you just watch how I handle this over the next year and three to five years, whatever it is. And it should be a learning lesson for you about resiliency about how you can take heat and how you can laugh it off and not let it bother your in- internal core. You got to have a very thick heat shield if you're confident in yourself. And so for me, you know, your kids are watching, you know. So I would rather roll with it, have a little bit of fun with it, get back to work and, you know, grow my business. One thing we probably should talk about, which, you know, I haven't talked about with anybody before, so I'll share it with you. You know, I put the business up for sale. To serve the country, you know. So Reince Priebus obviously was doing everything he could to block that. Steve Bannon was doing everything he could to block that. I didn't understand all the shenanigans and games inside of Washington, you know. And then I learned that well, you don't even have to do that. You have to put the business up for sale. You can get carve-outs and exceptions and things like that. But I was really trying to do the right thing. And then unfortunately, I picked a Chinese buyer because they were going to keep my employees. So the great irony there: I'm keeping the employees going with the Chinese buyer, and then bam, they use that as a political instrument against me as well. So uh, the Genworth deal just gets uh, approved by CFIUS, but the Skybridge deal doesn't, and it's not approved for national security reasons. Okay, so now you can sit here and carp and whine about it, and you can say, wow, that's a really uneven strike zone from CFIUS, or you can shut up and get back to work, no whining, and let's go. And so in a weird way, and I actually talked to the president about this been a month ago. It was probably uh, right after Mother's Day, I think, where I was talking about the situation. And he said, hey, listen, you know, maybe you're better off. Maybe you're going to make just way more money. And maybe down deep, you'll be happy to get your company back. And he was 1,000% right. You know, I'm super happy that I'm back at Skybridge. I'm super happy that I've reconciled with my wife. I'm super happy that I, I got the firm back and I can see how we can carve out a path for a, this $10 billion firm going to $20 billion. And I've got this, I had make Skybridge fun again hats made. Right now they're in Skybridge blue. <laughs> I want to knock off everything from the campaign, but they're in Skybridge blue. And let's make it fun again. Let's have a good time.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So I want to turn to some life lessons. You've written a few books. The first called Goodbye, Gordon Gecko, And I think if someone hasn't read it and only knows you from the press, they might be a little surprised by what they find in the books. Why don't you talk a little bit about how that book
1: came about was I was in Oliver Stone's movie, Wall Street 2. And he asked me to read his manuscript. And I was thinking about writing a book. And at that time, I was really just writing it because I've had this improbable life. You know, I was 45 years old. I said, okay, it's been a very improbable life. I went from this blue collar family to the World Economic Forum to Goldman Sachs, to Harvard Law School. I'm building my own business. I literally start with a Rolodex of zero other than my buds, you know, that are in plumbing and clamming and they're in Auto Collision and Autoglass. I'm, um, you know, everybody in my family is named Anthony. I just happen to be Anthony Hedge Fund, right? You got Anthony Autoglass, Anthony uh, <laughs> Delhi. I mean, so, you know, because you know, your grandfather's named Anthony, everybody gets named Anthony. So I'm sitting here with this improbable life. I said, let me write it down. And so I handed the script to Oliver and then Kelly O'Connor, who was working at Wiley, she said, well, you're in the movie. Why don't we write a goodbye Gordon Gecko? how to find your fortune without losing your soul? And so the message of the book is that you can be a blue-collar kid. You can be dressed in hundred percent polyester, which what I was at my first Goldman interview. I mean, I was fully flammable at the first <laughs> Goldman interview. Okay, I had a hundred percent polyester sh- shirt on, white on white. I had a black Guido tie. I had a black. Do you have poly- a photo of that? No, somewhere? I don't. Ugh. Thank God, because the the person that interviewed me said, "Hey, you're a pretty smart guy, but you are the worst dressed person that we've met at the Harvard Law School." And by the way, I'll invite you back to Goldman Sachs, but you cannot dress like this at Goldman Sachs. And so I was mortified. I had to go down to like this like Wasp, like it's called J Press. Okay, it's right there in off Mass Avenue. And I bought this like blazer, you know, it was like a suit. It was it was wool. I had to put it on my credit card. I almost fainted at the price. And uh, I can remember calling my mom. And my mom was like very defensive of me as she still is today. She's like, what are they crazy? You look fantastic. You know, I was in like the Tony Saturday Night Live, you know, gold chain outfit, you know. So, I mean, I wrote it all down because I wanted people to know it doesn't matter in America. Okay, you can grow up without those contacts, without those relationships, and through your networking skills, your love of people, your work ethic, you can go out and create a big and great life for yourself. And so, but there was trials and tribulations in that book, which I wrote about honestly. So, I appreciate you bringing it up. I also wrote about people that were mentors of mine, what I learned from these people, and why. You know, one of my friends, unfortunately, who helped me get Oscar Capital started, died of a brain tumor. And so I wrote about him, and I wrote about what his passion was in life, and what a special guy he was. You know, so that book got published, the movie went out, that book sold reasonably well, actually. I mean, I always make a joke that I've written three international bestsellers and if you don't believe me, come into my basement, I'll show you every book <laughs> I had to buy to make them so, right? But that book actually sold pretty well. And then I wrote the little book of hedge funds, which actually sold pretty well. And then I wrote Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, which sold well, but then after I blew up from the White House, sold really well. You know, and so and Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole was more about the trials and tribulations of Skybridge and how we were almost completely out of business. And so you know, I write about networking, success, and failure. How do you have to adapt and pivot as an entrepreneur? I write about staff. How you got to take care of your staff. Uh, you know, in the military, the uh, military leadership eats last. Soldier eat first. Military eats last. You got to put that into practice in your own business. Make sure everybody feels secure and happy in their jobs.
0: What are the key principles as? the CEO of SkyBridge that you use for the team to impart the message that you want across 60 people?
1: I mean, I've got three things in my head. I just think about it as a triangle. Okay, so the first thing is I'm a big believer in delegation. I don't want to be the bottleneck here. And so if there's guys running the SALT conference, men and women, that's their lane. Run the SALT conference. You guys report back to me. Tell me what you need from me to make it easier for you. How can I make it better? But you stay in your lane, do your job. You be the CEO, if you will, of the SALT conference. If you're running capital here, same thing. If you're in production on our television show, same thing. And so, you know, there was a period of time here before I left to join the Trump administration where I was raising capital for the president's campaign, hosting Wall Street Week, was the host and curating the SALT conference, overseeing a 65 person firm and its compliance and then obviously doing the social media and networking business. So those five things are actually impossible to do unless you have a couple of things in your head about doing them, which is delegation, accountability, okay, and creating an esprit de corps inside the firm where people think that they're working for a, a higher value. They're working for a bigger deal than just themselves. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, had a great thing in the Oval Office, and I got the plaque over there. I bought it from the Reagan Library. There's no limit to what a man can do Or where he can go, if he doesn't mind, who gets the credit? I think it's just a great idea about empowering people around you, make them feel valuable. And so for me, I always try to do that. I also tell people, watch your pronouns. Forget the I, me, and mine, because that doesn't make a team. Talk about it with we and our. Talk about it as a collective experience. Human beings, whether we like it or not, are social organisms. And so we need each other. We thrive off of each other's spirit and energy if we get the social organism right or we swirl out of control and go down the charybdis or whirlpool if we get it wrong. And so you have to focus on what is valuable to you. I said from the White House, an Italian aphorism. I didn't like all the Italian stereotyping that was going on inside the White House, by the way. It's one thing I totally disliked. I didn't think that was fair. But one thing I said was that, you know, the fish thinks from the head down. And so if you hold yourself a certain way, um, you hold yourself a certain way, good things will happen.
0: Inside the rabbit hole, it's a lot about entrepreneurship. How do you think about, say, at a hedge fund business, someone starting a hedge fund, how they staff it and how they make changes?
1: So I would say, number one, be very gradual. You know, It's like going to the store and buying sh- shirts and ties. If you go and buy 15 shirts and ties and suits, for that matter, on one day, the chances are you're going to like three of them, 12 of them you're not going to really like, those 12 end up like Collecting dust in the closet and the three that you like. So go and buy one at a time or maybe two at a time. And so be very gradual about who you're hiring. Uh, second thing is if you've been wrong on who you're hiring, if they don't fit your culture, fire quickly. Okay, so I do admire that about the president. Okay, I, And I've said that he's had very high turnover, but he's an entrepreneur. So if it's not working, he's firing people very quickly. A lot of people are critical of him because they're comparing him to the other 44 presidents. But if you think about it from an entrepreneur's point of view, in both businesses that I've started, we had very high turnover in the beginning until we got the team right. And now, remarkably, we have very low turnover. So we're 13 years old. We've had hardly any turnover the last eight years. That's not to say that a young kid won't go to business school or Somebody's moving to the West Coast, or a woman is starting a family, or a man is starting a family, and they need to geographically reposition. But by and large, we're not having massive rotisserie in and out of the place because we've got the culture right now. So go slow, be gradual. Uh, When you're wrong, fire quickly because uh, nobody, Jack Welch and Jim McCann, founder of 1 800 Flowers, CEO of GE, both said the same thing to me. And they said it a little differently, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but they said, you know, waiting to fire somebody has never been the right decision. You know, and so what typically happens is we're conflict avoiders. By and large, we all want everybody to like us. And so what we do is someone's not doing well, and then we're like, oh my God, I don't know how to describe it, but we, you know, we have to cut people quickly. And you're doing it in a humane way. One of the best things I learned about my firing is that Mike Fassatelli, when he fired me, he was actually right. He was giving me the opportunity to reposition myself into a bigger and better job for me, right? And so, so you have to do that for other people. I think it's very important, but do it in a humane way. I mean, people would get fired from Skybridge like Club Med here. I mean, I pay ridiculous amounts of severance, and I, you know, make sure everyone's got their health care. And we pay health care. We pay a hundred percent of the health care around here. We don't take a deduction on anybody's health care. We feed everybody. We have the maximum allowable. Profit contribution to their 401Ks and profit sharing. I to just tell you you should be smart enough to run the business in a way that's profitable. Don't be overly greedy. Don't take all the money for yourself, particularly if you're super successful. What do you need that resentment for? You don't want to be the fat cat where other people are looking at you like you're a loser, selfish loser. And by the way, there's a lot of rich, arrogant jerk-offs in the hedge fund industry. You personally don't need to be one. And, and I don't mean you because you're actually not one, but I'm talking about your listeners. Don't be an arrogant, selfish Hedge fund jerk-off. That would be my message to you.
0: It's a good message. I think (laughs) so. I think it's important. So when you come back to Skybridge, what's changed?
1: I would say not a lot has changed. If anything, for me, the whole experience that I had was like a combination that George Bailey and Ebenezer Scrooge had a baby that happened to be me. And so I'm come back to Skybridge now, having been burnt up in the political world, And I didn't do anything dishonest or Scrooge-like, because I think I'm a generous person. You can ask the people around here. But I had the feeling of, oh, my God, thank God I'm waking up from this bad dream, and I could return back to my business. And then the flip side is, like George Bailey, I've been encouraged and very gratified by the number of friends I have in the industry that have gone out of their way to help me. And so, you know, if you want a friend, think about it the way Benjamin Franklin once thought about it. If you want a friend, ask somebody for a favor. And so literally, when I returned to Skybridge, I picked up the phone and started calling all my friends in the industry and said, hey, I need a favor. I need you to help me. I need more money in the door. I need more ability to allocate to you if you're a hedge fund manager. I need you to make a commitment that you're going to come to the SALT conference next year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so to me, that's been very, very gratifying. And I'm sitting here with you very blessed and very grateful that I'm back here. And then, you know, listen, you know, we built this company from scratch. So it's our our company. And so I'm happy to be here and I'm the, basically the majority shareholder because I, I have 45% of the company, but I control the vote here. So, I mean, even if these guys didn't want me back, I could have voted myself back in, right? So, I mean, <laughs> but whatever. Point is, I'm back and we're going to triple, we'll start with a double, but we're going to triple the size of the company.
0: What does it feel like being, let's use the word fame, more recognized on the street than you would have? No, it's totally weird. What's I mean, it, I had like, like this
1: like mild, petite level of fame as I used to do. Wall Street Week and uh, Fast Money and these shows that were inside the financial services genre. So maybe there's 100,000 people that knew who I was. But now, you know, I don't know, I think uh, Politico or Axios or somebody said I had like 55% name recognition. I was like, my God. So what are they, here's the thing I would say. If you're famous, somebody who's really good, that makes it sort of easier to get a restaurant reservation and things like that. Uh, some of it is like, Not so good because, you know, the FBI has to get pulled in because you could get death threats to your family members. And politics in our country is so polarized now that people say very mean and spirited and nasty things to you on social media. But at the end of the day, you should be grateful. And so if someone comes up to me and wants to talk or say, hey, you want to take a selfie or anything like that, I'm like totally cool with it because I love people. I love hanging out with people. I feel I'm an accessible person. I mean, if you grew up the way I grew up, you know that you're no more important or more valuable than any other human being on the earth. Moreover, if you grew up the way I grew up, and I tell all these, like, elite fat cats, you know, you're not that much smarter than the kids that were in my neighborhood. Now, maybe some of those kids didn't go to college, and maybe they're out-clamming, but, you know, that's because culturally they didn't have the incentive or the motivation to go to school. But they're equally as smart as you. Don't think of yourself as so superior. So the fame, weirdly... Has put me uh, closer to my spirituality. It's made me realize that I'm just like everybody else. I got to treat everybody nicely.
0: All right, let's turn to some closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment or extracurricular achievement?
1: You mean like professional sports? Like when, when Mookie Wilson hit the ball through Bill Buckner's net legs? That's a good one. I mean, as a that was like unbelievable.
0: Okay. I mean, that yeah. was amazing. Okay, How about so you as a participant?
1: I was captain of my high school football team. And uh, we, got, we were playing Herrick's High School. And... We used to beat the pants off of Herrick's. Now there's probably like guys out there are, like mad now that I said that, right? And Ray Dalio's a couple years older than me, an Italian kid from uh, Herrick's, obviously way more successful than me, but wasn't his class, but it was younger. So we were very smugged up. And so we were out drinking the night before, which is stupid. I don't drink anymore, but I was drinking as a you know kid, like a, a, a jerk. And so we were a touch hung over. And we were getting our butts kicked by the Herricks High School team, which we should have been beating. And so our coach lit us up at halftime. And I don't know what happened, but we pulled it together in the second half. And so my greatest achievement that I can remember in sports was I had dropped back to pass and I couldn't find anybody open, but they were blitzing us. And I stepped in front of the line of scrimmage, primarily by accident, by the way. But I was, once I knew I was over the line of scrimmage, I took off and started running. And so I had like a 45, 46-yard run, and I got tackled on like the four-yard line. And two plays later, I threw a left-out touchdown pass where I like lobbed it over the head of the defender, and uh, we won the game. And so for me, that was like the best thing that ever happened, you know. I mean, I, was like, I thought that was great. I mean, I've had multiple disasters, yep. you know. I got playing catcher on the baseball team. I got hit by— uh, Leon Batista, that SOB, knocked me into the fence. You know, I had a bloody nose, got a concussion. My uh, headgear flew off, but I still held onto the ball, which I was very proud of. But I mean, I ended up with a concussion. So I mean, I've had some disasters too.
0: Uh, What's your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: Well, my pet peeve is that a lot of people think we're in the investing business, but I sort of think we're in the fashion business. And so the skirts come up and down in our industry. So you have to be very, very careful about that, you know, so- Somebody like Buffett, who you know personally, but I only know through his writings, and I've seen him speak a few times, but I would say that he's more about playing a long-term 50-year trend and not getting sucked into the fashion. Okay, so what do I mean by that? I'll take your listeners back to 2006 and seven, where everybody wanted to invest their money like a college endowment, and everybody had a 75-year period of time in terms of their time horizon. And then we move to 2008, the world blows up. We go from a 75-year time horizon to a 75-minute time horizon, and every hedge fund manager has to have an ATM machine in their office in the lobby, where you can get your money out instantaneously. We're now, uh, we're in the vogue of ETFs. And so, I don't know, maybe the ETFs, the baskets of ETFs will break from their underlying securities like they did in August of 2015. You know, that could happen, I mean, who knows? All I know is there used to be these seven-day auction preferreds. We used to sell them to high-net-worth individuals and say, this is great. You'll get an extra 50 basis points of uh, return, and they're seven days. You're just holding them for seven days, and they don't get locked up, and you get to reset them. And we were doing that until, boom, the financial crisis came, and they were locked for seven years. And so I would tell people, be wary of things that are too good to be true. Be wary of riding the trend too hard because it usually swings back to bite you. And recognize that we're in the fashion business. You know, Things come in and out of fashion. Hedge funds right now are out of fashion. But yet, some of the smartest investors in the world, your former employer, the Yale Endowment, has a... A lot of hedge fund exposure, and so does Harvard, and so does some of the greatest minds in the world have a ton of hedge fund exposure. There's a reason why, because hedge funds give you an ambidexterity of use of capital, and they can go into a lot of different classes of securities, and they can reduce volatility, all of which is super positive long-term. So for me, I would tell people, beware of fashion trends in the investment industry.
0: What's the riskiest thing you've ever done?
1: The riskiest and the stupidest, actually, I mean, by far the stupidest. And so there used to be a; it's probably still there. It's called uh, Action Park. It was up in uh, Yeah, Vernon, New Jersey. New, Vernon, New Jersey, Vernon Valley, New Jersey. And so we were complete idiots there. I mean, one time I was going down that like that cement slide, you know, with the the braking mechanism, and I flipped off it and like burnt up my back. That was stupid. But the riskiest and stupidest thing that I've done is one time coming out of Action Park. There were these very deep quarries. They were dug out and they were filled with 60 feet of rainwater. And so me and my cousins were jumping into those quarries. And so stupidest thing I've ever done in my life that was like the size of a, as high as a telephone pole, I jumped off the thing. You know, thank God I landed properly. I mean, you could have broken a rib, dislocated an arm. It's probably 18. If you're going to do something that stupid, you have to point your toes. Okay. Of course I didn't do that because I was falling like an imbecile. And I landed flat-footed, and I bruised the bottom of my feet, where literally it almost became impossible to walk for a week. So it's literally the stupidest, riskiest, dumbest thing I've ever done. And so please don't do that if you're a kid listening.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: I think it's the examples more than even the teachings, right? Because, you know, what ends up happening in life is that actions speak louder than words. I think that cliche is relevant. And so I have vivid memories of my mom, Putting my dad's clothes out, I have vivid memories of her putting his lunch pail together at the early part of his career, and I have vivid memories of him just going to work tirelessly. I mean, he's 83 today. He was a tireless worker, and they were honest people. And so, like I tell the people here at Skybirds, hey, listen, you know, my dad gave me my last name clean. You are not doing anything, anything, okay, inside of Skybirds that's going to hurt my dad's reputation or his name under any circumstances. And so. You know, we've run this thing about as whistle clean and as tight as anybody can, and I have a zero-tolerance policy because when I think about all the hard work and labor that my parents did and my grandparents did to get me to live this life, okay, I'm indoors, I'm out of direct sunlight, and there's no heavy lifting, you see? I mean, the calluses are here from stupid dumbbells that I use in the morning with some sophisticated foo-foo trainer, okay? It's not related to whacking an ax or, or, or a shovel somewhere, and so what I tell people is don't take your life for granted, don't act entitled and be very, very grateful that we can be indoors out of direct sunlight with no heavy lifting. And so you're going to honor my parents by never doing anything wrong. So I really think it's more the actions than anything else. My grandmother started as a maid, Ted. So for me, I'm in the uh, hotel room. I'm always dropping 20s to 40s. Depends on the you know, the hotel and the service and stuff. But I always leave money. This could be my grandmother being the maid in that hotel. Somebody's grandmother is making that bed or somebody's mom or somebody's dad or whoever it may be, you know? You know, why should be nice. You know, you've already won the lottery of life. Learn to be nice.
0: What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about?
1: Well, I'm a big believer in reading outside of your field of learning. And so obviously I've read Continual Body of Finance and I'm reading the stack of papers that most people in finance got taught to read, like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Barron's and things like that. But away from that, I spent a lot of time reading about history outside of the United States. And I I've spent the principal amount of time traveling outside of the United States, so I can not only learn about these other cultures and learn about how they're made up and what the genesis is of these other cultures, but why they are where they are today. And so, I mean a great book that I just read uh was called The China Mission and it was about George Marshall who basically went to China for almost a two-year period of time after the Second World War to see if he could stop the civil war that was going on in China. And so that book was written by a fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. His name was Daniel Kurtz furman a uh, great book. It really gives you a lot of context on what was going on in China 70 years ago, what the manifestation of Maoism looked like back then. And then, you know, for me, I think it's very important to understand cultural context. You know, Most people in the United States don't know what the Sykes-Picot Treaty is. That's the treaty that was put in place in May of 2016 that originated the boundaries in the Middle East. And so the French bureaucrat Sykes and the French bureaucrat Picos put this together. And basically, it was very flawed in its design because— They didn't hold tight to territorial borders and tribal borders. They just did it the way they thought that they wanted to do it. They created this imaginary country called Iraq, where they put the Shias and Sunnis together with the Kurds. They all hate each other. And that imaginary country has had civilian strife there for 100 years. And so, you know, that treaty uh, was elemental to some of the disastrous situations that have happened in the Middle East. And so a lot of Americans don't know that. But I think it's very good to understand that so that you can have a historical context what's going on around the world. You look at the European situation, the euro is effectively a fixed exchange rate. It's been very, very good for the Northern Europeans. It's been not so good for the Southern Europeans because of the difference in their cultures, uh, but for the Northern Europeans, like the Germans, they've they've had a subsidy, they've had a currency subsidy to run a great export economy over the last 15 to 20 years. And they also, Gerhard Schroeder, reformed their labor markets to make it way more competitive. You know, the French didn't do that, and so the French are now stuck, you know, you know what the third largest city in France is, Ted? Because that would be London, okay, because they're all leaving France, okay? And the point being is that their labor laws are a disaster, and so, you know, one of the big aphorisms that stuck with me from my reading is that the country that can fire the most people will hire the most people, okay? And that's a little bit ironic. Uh, the socialists don't understand that. But if you can't fire anybody, like in France, then guess what? You're not going to hire anybody. Because if you hire somebody and they put their feet up on the desk, it takes you three years to fire them, then you're not going to hire anybody. I'm a student of American history. I particularly love the post-World War II era because it really set up the modern infrastructure for our global society, and I love understanding the American value system, which is why I'm super upset about this whole child separation policy, okay? It doesn't matter who started it, okay? We don't have to get into a blame exercise. What we have to do is we're Americans first, we're partisan second, we're patriots first, we're partisan second, fix the problem. It doesn't reflect well on the American society. Whether they're breaking the law, not breaking the law, don't separate people from their kids. Okay, that's a barbaric thing, and uh, we're better than that as a society. Okay, so there's nobody can debate me on that. I can fight anybody on that. Okay, I don't want to hear the nonsense about it, okay?
0: What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: Fortune favors the bolt. Virgil said that, uh, and it's totally true. Fortune favors the bolt, and so don't be afraid. You know, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And even if it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to work out, it still works out because – you're living, when you feel that adrenaline surge when you're starting your first company or you're starting your first business, you're really living. Even if you fail at it, okay, don't be afraid to fail. Fortune favors the bold. All
0: right, last one. You are 100 years old sitting in your box at City Field.
1: Do I need Viagra or I don't need Viagra? Uh, that's up to you. We'll, I don't know. Let's we, say we, I don't, don't need the Viagra. I'm doing great on that. All right, that's you know, all good. Not that your listeners need to hear that, but I- well, let's just pray that I don't You're violence. still young. Okay, you're still going. young yeah. and yeah. vibrant. Right. Young. Yep. So
0: you're sitting back thinking about your life. What advice would you give yourself today?
1: Here's the advice I would give is I would say that, boy, anytime I let my ego or anytime I let my pride into a decision, I probably didn't make the right decision. Uh, so if it was an anger-based decision or if it was a bold-up prideful thing. I probably didn't make the right decision, right? So example, I was supposed to be the president's like chief networking officer. I was supposed to be his OPL director. Okay, I thought, okay, great. I'll sell my company, go do that. I didn't realize that I wasn't on the same team as like a previous and I thought we were all wearing the same jersey, the Trump jersey, we're gonna go help the president. I didn't realize that I was gonna get assassinated and killed by those guys through opposition research and negative stories written about me and all of this sort of nonsense, right? And so when they blocked me from coming into the administration, I got my ego into it and I got my pride into it. And so you probably shouldn't start your first day in the West Wing with a chainsaw and a hockey mask on, right? So the minute I got the job, I started the chainsaw, put the hockey mask on, and I went right after, you know, the rancid man, you know, and and I want to take him out because of what he did to me. And that was absolutely, uh, in hindsight, a mistake. I shouldn't allow my pride and my ego to get in the way of that
0: anthony thanks so much for taking the time great
1: great good luck with everything you're a terrific guy and like i said at the beginning you're like one of the smartest guys i know so Uh god bless
0: hey before you take off i've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month i get a lot of emails like this and i'm sure you do too so i'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.